So let's go ahead and get into the word. We're going to be in First Peter uh, chapter 3. Uh, the text is printed in your bulletin, uh, or if you have a, a Bible, maybe on your phone or a physical one, you can open it up. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verses uh, 13 through 17. So we're going to be continuing in this series. This is actually the last week of this series entitled Evangelism as Exiles. So we're looking at this idea of, of what it looks like for us to be in a culture who is, it's no longer normal to be Christian. So we're really living as exiles, as other than the society, right? When you go out to the grocery store or in your work or uh, at school, wherever it may be, the norm is no longer to follow Jesus, right? So we see that in First Peter. He's writing to a primarily uh, Gentile audience who, who recently got converted, right? Like, like they're, not, they're not generations upon generations of believers of God that have been passed down, right? These are, these are new converts. And we see that uh, though that the people in this time and for us is the s- at the same time, though we've been called out and we live in exile, we're still called to live out our faith, right? We're still called to be a witness to the world. So we're going to be looking again. Um, remember, if you remember last week, we, we had this idea of we are waging war against the passions of the flesh. Remember that? And that was coming off the heels of us talking about who we are in Jesus, right? It always started with that. It started with who God's people are. Chuck talked about in the first week that we are elect exiles, that we got, have been called out to live for Jesus. Second week, we looked at uh, the, the many descriptors, right, that we are God's special possession, that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And these last two weeks, we're really looking like, okay, if this is true about who we are, then how are we to live? How are we to live in light of who we are? Okay, so we're going to be looking again um, at 1 Peter chapter uh, 3. Let's go ahead and open this together. Verses 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even you should, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if, you should be, if it should be God's will than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, uh, we do ask that you would be here uh, present, moving. We know that uh, your word feeds us, it guides us, it directs us, also reveals sin to us in our own hearts, in the uh, hearts of people outside of this room. And Father, we pray that you would be here with us, allowing us to see the text as you have called us to see. Spirit, move uh, in the hearts of each one of us in the room. Father, we thank you for this time. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. First, as we start, I want you to think about fear. Okay, when that word comes to mind, first, like, what do you think about when you, when you hear the word fear? We can go down uh, the trail and think about uh, things that we fear, right? We think about that maybe an easy one would be animals, right? I grew up in the Southwest, so I think first of a rattlesnake. I can count the time of hands uh, count the time on one hand that I saw a rattlesnake in their desert when I was playing in the desert as a child, and I was terrified, right? Like, so we can think about these things, that rattlesnakes, bees, bugs, coyotes, certain parts of 
Las Cruces, my, where I, my dad lived, I could hear the coyotes at night, right? And there's something frightening about that, okay? We can also think that, that when we think about fear, fears change, right, in society. If you remember back to 9-11, I remember, I'm sure like many of us in the room, we can remember the place and the time that we, where, where we were when we heard about the attacks to our country, right? In that time, there was a heightened fear, and I would actually say it's still lingering over 20 years later, of terrorism, right? But in, in 2000, 2000, that wasn't a high fear, right? So fears can change. Even now, we think about it in the pandemic, right? There's a, an increased fear in maybe getting sick and a, a family member getting sick and losing someone, right? So fears can change. But often, fears are even more personal than that, okay? So we fear loneliness. We fear strangers, enemies, death. We fear public speaking and doing what Chuck and I have the blessing of doing. I never thought I was going to preach every week, but the Lord has called me to preach often, even getting in front of people. And it's not because standing here is intrinsically dangerous, hopefully, guys, right? <laughs> but we fear the humiliation that could come of being in front of other people and goofing up right? Like that's where the fear comes. We fear being betrayed by a friend. We fear a spouse leaving, maybe a child dying. We fear our parents getting older and not being able to care for them. Like, right? So whether we talk about this idea or not a lot, fear plays a significant role in our lives. It plays a significant role in how our life plays out. And often fear will drive us to certain lifestyles, certain decisions in life. If you're like me, this can not only apply to like small areas of life, but it can actually apply to your walk with the Lord, right? That we fear, often, we can fear harm that we will face for walking with Jesus, for our life being marked as different, for, for walking as an elect exile, right? We fear that. Like, that's what the text is telling us, that we can fear the rejection that may come, people avoiding you, thinking you're strange, but we get to see in the passage today that, that how a proper fear, fear in itself is not bad, the text does not tell us, but, but having a proper fear is actually very beneficial and helpful and freeing for God's people to live a life with Jesus. Okay, so the theme we have today, and this is in your bulletin as well, along with the outline, is the fear of God is foundational for Christian living. And we're going to really be looking at two different sections. First, we're going to look at the fear of man in the first couple verses, and then uh, the last uh, few, we're going to look at the fear of God. So look at me for, look with me first at uh, verse 13. Let's start with the fear of man. It says this in the text. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So Peter starts here with a rhetorical question, okay? Who will harm you for living God, a godly life, right? Who will harm you for doing what I urged us to do last week, to live a life that is marked by intentional grace, kindness, and love? Who will harm you for that? So we can really take it one of two ways, right? He can, you can think about it in this way, that you're saying, oh, well, it, it, it's, it's a call to trust God, because in the end, nothing can harm you, because you'll end up with Jesus, right? That's one way to read it. And actually, the closer reading is not that. The closer reading to this text is saying that, remember I talked about this last week, that in society and in the Bible, there are overlapping characteristics or behaviors that people see as good. In other words, Christians, K 
can live, in a li- live a life within society in some aspects agreeing with what is good with society, right? There is some overlap there, okay? So whenever we think about this, in the context, he's not saying that we're going to be okay because God can always care for us. We know, that's, we, we know that's true, but he's actually saying that it's not common for someone to harm you for righteousness' sake, because there is that overlap of society and Bibles, the Bible's truth about what is good and what is beautiful, right? That's, that's where he starts. But he goes on. Okay, in verse 14a, he says this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So the truth is, if you live a life that is marked by these things, marked by righteousness, we still live in a fallen world, right? We still live with people who will disdain you for being full of grace, love, and kindness. We still do that. But the the language that Peter uses, the the verbiage, is very uncommon in the New Testament. It's actually uh, denoting a a very doubtful possibility that this will happen. He's saying it's not going to be all that common. But what he's saying is, but it may happen, and if it does, here's how you live. Okay, that's where the text is going. So he's saying, if you're marked by these things that are beautiful, a beautiful lifestyle, remember we talked about that last week. He says, you may encounter suffering, and if you do, we're going to go on. In Matthew 5.10, this is really echoing Jesus' words. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that idea in Matthew 5 and 1 Peter are both talking about God's people being blessed for persecution, right? And this idea of blessed, we need to understand, right, is the same idea as rejoicing, that we should rejoice. This is not an intrinsic feeling inside of us that we're just feeling good, right? If you get persecuted, you're probably not feeling good. But it's a deep joy when we get to look at life through the lens of God, right? Because we are living in the way that God has created humanity to live. So you are blessed knowing that God will reward those in eternity for walking with him. So here it is in in verse 14b. In the second half of 14, he gets to the place where, okay, this may happen. If it does, here's how you live. Okay, this is the first one that he's talking about here. In the second half of verse 14, he says, have no fear of them nor be troubled. So this is the first command on how to live. So when this type of suffering happens, he says, even if they persecute you for living with, for righteousness, with intentional grace, kindness, and love, don't fear them. And this is more than just being afraid, right? This is fear that drives your life. This is fear that drives uh, life changes, right? He's saying, Don't change the way you live. Don't fear them enough for it to change who you are and how you live. Instead, we are to fear God. We're going to see that in a moment, right? If you fear man, the thing is he's saying, if you fear man, and that is what's driving your life, you're going to live worried about embarrassment, worried about shame, humiliation that come through the mouths of the people that are around you. He says, don't be feared or even be troubled because God is with you. 
So I read a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you will have heard his name before. He was a very famous theologian. I'm going to tell you a story about him. It goes like this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who had the courage to speak out against Adolf Hitler, write about it, organize opposition against Hitler, and even join plans to assassinate him. He also helped Jews to escape from Germany. Bonhoeffer preserved in all of this for a decade, even though he was engaged to a woman for part of the time. The Nazis imprisoned and finally executed him. He said this, Those who are afraid of man have no fear of God, and those who fear God have no more fear of men. So we hear stories about this, this kind of stuff often, right? I'm sure many of us in the room have heard Bonhoeffer's name, right? We hear stories about these big guys that fight uh, against big powers, right? And they prevail. Sometimes, like Bonhoeffer, he was executed. So maybe they didn't prevail, but he was faithful, right? In our text today, I think, and for us, the truth is that there are thousands, if not millions, of unread, untold stories about faithful Christians who lived without the fear of man, who, 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 who fought that, who said, I'm going to live in the fear of God. I shouldn't have said without the fear of man because, you know, sanctification is a process, right? Like, we're always going to be moving towards Jesus, and it's not, we're never going to be perfect. But the truth is that I think that what he's calling us to here is the little things, right? It, it's making decisions in the small things in your life through looking at God first instead of the people around you. So if we aren't careful, like I mentioned earlier, I try to list some fears. So like un- help us get in that mode of think, how am I uh, living out of a fear outside of God, right? So if, if we're not careful, the fear of man can really rule our lives. I want you to think about your vocation or your work. You can easily become more concerned with performing for your boss or peers than working ethically. In your marriage, maybe you can be more concerned with appeasing your spouse, keeping the peace, making every, sure everything's okay, than growing in Christ together and speaking the hard word. In friendship, you can be more concerned with having friends and keeping them than the influence they're having on your life, right? So we can be fearing all these people that are around us, and it's driving us to a certain lifestyle. So my plea for all of us is to look at a text like this and say, where in my life am I fearing man more than God? So once you do that soul-searching work and, and you dig down deep and you find it, the next question has to be, why am I doing this? Why am I fearing that person more than I am God? And I think that you're going to find this, that you and me both desire to please God often. I'm sorry, we desire to please man more than we desire to please God in these instances. Now, I told you before that it's like the blessing and curse of a preacher that I get to sit in a text all week. Well, I've been sitting in this all week in my own mess, right? That I got to look at my own heart. None of us want to hear this. I didn't want to hear it. I don't want to look. I don't want to see how my life is being driven by this or that. Because I want to be focused on Jesus. Like, that, that's, that's who I want to be. But we have to look at this kind of text and say, Lord, how, how, can I, how can I move closer to you by fearing these things less and fearing you more? The beautiful thing is that Peter doesn't leave us here, right? He actually gives us the antidote to the fear of man. The antidote is not just do better, 
but let's fear God. Okay, so that's the next uh, point. Let's look together at verse 15. He says this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So Peter, from the beginning, he provides the antidote for fear of man. He says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Instead of fearing people, Christians are to revere Christ, to fear God. You know, this idea of fearing God has always been hard for me to understand, right? Because when I, come, I think about fear, I think about what we talked about earlier, like a rattlesnake biting me, like that kind of stuff, right? So even this week, I'm like, I, I got to like put some plain language to it. So I went to my new Bible dictionary. I've showed you this book before. It's really helpful. I, I looked at fear in this dictionary, and I went to the holy fear section, which is fear of God, and it says this. Holy fear is God-given. It enables men to reverence God's authority, obey his commandments, and hate and shun all forms of evil. So in other words, fearing God in this instance where we are today is understanding and believing that God has ultimate authority, right? That he is the one that you should be looking to. He is the one that you should be looking to to follow, not the people around you. you we follow God first. So in the text, it says, honor Christ in your hearts. And this, this idea of heart for Peter, it's, it's the, the locust of, of the person, right? It's not only like, I'm going to follow my heart like I've talked about. This is not what he's saying here. He's saying that it is the seat of your will and your emotions both. So it's not merely intellectual that he's calling you to honor Christ, but it's a deep commitment to the authority of God over all. And he goes on in, in the second half of 15 saying this, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Okay, so many over the generations of the faith have, have used this text uh, as an argument for formal Christian apologetics and philosophy, right? It's an appropriate application for that text. Uh, I think for us, a closer application, not only for us, but to the text itself, a closer application is, is not a formal defense in front of like a court of law, right? Or... Uh, defending it in a debate. It's not, this is not formal apologetics. When he's speaking here, he's speaking to normal Gentile believers, right? He's speaking to people who barely even know, like, anything about Christianity. Like, he's speaking to the normal Christian about speaking to their friends, their neighbors, their family members. So he's saying here, when they see your beautiful lifestyle that is marked by grace, kindness, and love, be prepared to Tell them why you're living that way. Okay? Now the thing is that apologetics, that idea, even you can think about, I'm going to pause for a moment, think about what you think. The first idea that comes to your mind when you think about apologetics, some will be good, some will be bad, right? Some can be really harsh, some can be really good. I think apologetics can be helpful. It's defending the faith. At the same time, this idea of apologetics uh, can be used as an attack on another side, right? And I think it, it's important for us to see that defending the faith is not an attack on the world. It's not an attack on the people that are, that are in our city, right? It's not attacking them in any way. We're not called to do either one, right? Like, we're going to either pro go to, I'm going to attack the people that are not like me, and I'm going to tell them how they're wrong, or I'm going to come over here, I'm gonna, just going to withdraw altogether, they're bad. 
I'm good because I'm in Jesus, so let's get in our bubble and let's go away. It's not either side of those, okay? We're actually called to engage the society in gentleness. We'll see that in a second. But one theologian puts it like this, okay? Faith does not close doors to relationships with other people out of either fear or hate. It turns, rather, in openness to others just as it turns to God. So when it calls us to defend the faith, it means open the door of conversation about faith, caring for the other person as Christ does. We see at the end of verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16 um, the manner in which we're called to defend the faith, right? We can take that. This is the dangerous, th- dangerous thing about proof texting, right? You can do a lot of dangerous things with ripping Scripture out of, out of context, right? Like you can take verse 15 and use it as an, I'm going to go attack all the wrong beliefs out there. But right here in the, in the second half of 15, he says this, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So when others see your life that is marked by righteousness, they will ask you what makes you different. And the text tells us, be prepared to tell them why. And do it in gentleness. That is the tone to which we're called to evangelize to other people. When speaking about Jesus... We're to embody Jesus, who he is. Think about how gentle and tender and kind he has been to you. All that you have done in the past and all you continue to do, yet he still forgives you. We're called to go with that same gentleness towards other people. When he speaks of respect, he's not talking of respect towards the other person. You could apply it that way, but he's actually saying respectful towards God. So remember who has the authority. Remember who's actually working in this person. We're going to respect God. We're going to be gentle towards a person and we're going to speak in respect towards God. So the Christian is then to answer the non-believer gently and out of respect for God. Lastly, the last couple verses say this, and we'll go through this quick. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So when you face persecution, you should be known for your gentleness, right? The text says that they will revile your good behavior, but it will, there will still be some who hate righteousness. And he says good behavior, it doesn't stop, in Christ. So your good behavior is rooted in your identity the good in Christ, the goodness that came from him. So if you have good behavior, it's only because somebody's been good to you first, right? Only because he saved you first, right? That's what he's telling us here. And I think it's important to note when we talk about any of this kind of stuff, or persecution, anything, that he said that you're slandered, if you're slandered, but then he says, for Christ-like behavior. If you're slandered for being a jerk, that's on you. That's what he's saying, Right? He's saying that if you are going to be not gentle and use the gospel as an attack, you earned it. That's not the gospel. You're not getting persecuted for the gospel. He's, he's saying here that you are, if you are slandered for Christ-like behavior, when you are gentle, you give a gentle defense for the gospel, and they still revile you. That's what he's talking about here. 
And if that happens, he says, shame will come upon the head of your enemy in the day of judgment. There will be a day that that person will have to go before the Lord and admit what they did against him and you. Lastly, he says, for it's better to suffer for not doing good, if that should be God's will, than for you, than for doing evil. So lastly, I want to say about persecution as a whole. In this text, and I think this is uh, good across the scope of the New Testament, when he talks about persecution, here in this, in this passage, he's saying that it's not God's will that you suffer, but it is God's will that you live a faithful life, even if it results in suffering. Let me say it again. Here in the text, he's not saying it's God's will that you suffer, but it's God's will that you remain faithful. And if you remain faithful, sometimes it will result in suffering. Even amidst that, he wants you to be faithful. That's the call here. Okay, so I think really application for this text for us is defending the gospel, living out of who we are as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, God's elect exiles, right? Defending the faith now in gentleness. I think there's two things. We really got to get, you got you to think about two, both of them. First, you got to know the Bible. That's what he's saying here. You have to know the reason, the hope that is in you. You need to know that. You need to know. You need to dig into God's truth. You know, it's the beginning of the year. It's uh, January 23rd, right? So it's not too late to start a yearly Bible plan. If you have a phone or an iPad, it's really easy. Get the Bible app. There's hundreds of them. So what, he, what I think the first step is knowing God's word, right? Being immersed in it. Being immersed in scripture so that when somebody does prick you, says, why are you so kind to me? Bible oozes out, right? Like, that's what we need to be about. First, we got to know the scriptures, not only for their good, but for yours as well. The second thing is, we need to know the culture. We need to be able to speak the truth into society. You must know what's going on out there, right? We can't get in our bubble and say, oh, they're, it's just all bad, so I'm going to re- be a recluse. I'm, I'm going to move away from society, so we need to listen to our friends, our co-workers, and hear how they view life. What offends them? What seems senseless to them? What brings them joy? What are their fears? You can compare these things that they're saying to you against what the Word of God says. That is when you can speak the gospel truth into the person, right? Remember when, when I said that you really need both of these things. You need to know the Bible. You need to know society. If you do one, it's one of the two it can be dangerous. If you know the Bible and you get in your bubble and you don't care about society, it's really easy to become legalist, right? Like, I'm way better than those people out there. Like, I, I don't need them. God saved me, right? The other, on the other side, we can know the culture and love it. And, and then that results in us just, just giving in to the passions of the flesh because it's what it's telling us to do. But we've got to know both. We've got to be grounded in Scripture and then put that scripture to play in society by knowing the people around us. I'm going to conclude with this. It's really interesting. We actually played this song this morning, and I didn't know we were going to do that. But I'm going to quote uh, just a, a, a phrase from uh, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. It's by City of Light. We just sang it a few minutes ago, and I think it's a good conclusion for us. It says this, To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine, I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. 
So all the call that we've been talking about over the last two weeks, it's all this. It's all Christ and Christ's people moving out into society. Not meriting anything. Because you have already been chosen. right? Because you have already been called out as God's elect exiles. So my plea for all of us is that we would get in the word and go out to El Paso and love them to death so that they can prick us and the Bible comes out. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you um, thankful that you have given us your word, given us um, text that will uh, be hard for us to hear at times, be challenging for us to hear at other times, be comforting for us to hear at even other times. And Father, we pray this morning as we have heard your word that we would um, be attentive not only today in our minds, but that it would uh, move us out into the city to love these people of El Paso. We know that you love them more than we do. Father, we plead that you would allow us to be agents of your grace to this great city of El Paso. That as we go out, that we would be marked by kindness as you have been so kind to us. And that through your grace, you would begin to work and save these people here in El Paso. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time we've gotten to spend this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.